Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project, or TIP, and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change in this current moment, lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the U.S. and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal that we need. Our guest today, Ashindi Maxim, Executive Director of the Donors of Color Network, Sharon Chen, Board Chair for Donors of Color Action, and Senior Advisor, Danielle Dean Ryan. The Donors of Color Network is a community of high net worth donors building the power of people of color communities to win systemic change that builds racial equity. The Donors of Color Network works across race, national origin, and intersections of gender, sexual orientation, religion, and ability to achieve racial and gender equity, economic opportunity, environmental sustainability, and political power to transform social institutions to be more reflective and accountable to communities of color. Welcome to The Reconstruction, everyone. Thank you. We're pleased to be here. Thank you, Monique. Ashindi, let's begin at the beginning, shall we? What is the Donors of Color Network, and why does it need to exist? Well, first of all, thank you for having us here. It feels so topical to what you do here at The Reconstruction. Um, Donors of Color is a group of um, folks who work in philanthropy or who do philanthropic work who are people of color across race. So we are the first intersectional group of high net worth folks of color who want specifically to race on work on systemic racial justice. Um, the goal is really nothing less than shifting the center of gravity in politics and philanthropy towards racial justice. So we think in big systems. Um, we are looking how, at how do we engage you know, our personal influence, resources, networks, voice, um, moral authority as, you know, people of color um, to shift systems in ways that, you know, we think um, we are uniquely positioned to do. Um, We are currently about 63 people. We are a little over two years old. um, And the climate campaign was a really natural outgrowth of thinking about where our systems biased against people of color in fundamentally detrimental ways. um, And ways where we believe that shift is possible. Um, so the climate brings us to the climate campaign we're here to talk about today. Sharon, how does Donors of Color Action Group connect to this work? Well, Donors of Color Action is the C4 organization. That's a sister organization to Donors of Color Network. Um, if you're familiar with um, 501c3s and 501c4s, there's a lot of rules associated with 501c3s in terms of how explicitly you can connect the dots between you know, some issues and what's going on ele- either electorally or, or politically. And so Donors of Color Action gives us a lot more flexibility when we uh, talk to uh, communities or in terms of how we work with other organizations. And I would add, oh, I would just add quickly here that we want to contest for power. Um, and if we want to contest for power, then, you know, not just do service work, which is valuable and meaningful. But, you know, if we really want to contest for power, we want every lever possible at our disposal. Um, and that includes political levers, which aren't possible if you have only a 501c3. So given all of this, can you share more about the Donors of Color Network's focus on climate justice and the campaign you built in coordination with movement leaders? that launched this past February. And what is the goal of the Climate Funders Justice Pledge? Danielle, how about you go first? One of the things that struck me when I uh, was advising the Donors of Color Network is that they're not just looking to change particular policies, but they're looking to do philanthropy differently. And when I interviewed, as I started as an advisor, um, the members of the Climate Working Group, the members of the board, um, they'd heard two things. One, um, how climate impacts were, of course, disproportionately affecting communities of color, but also about the opportunity, um, about the potential gains in terms of jobs and wealth that could come from the transformation of the of, of the economy that, that's coming. But what struck them the most was how uh, philanthropy was exacerbating some of the challenges and they were not satisfied um, to simply put resources into organizations that were doing good work. They certainly do that. Um, But when they saw uh, the study that showed that of the billion dollars or so uh, that was going into um, 
the environmental field and climate work from the nation's biggest, most influential funders, the Hewlett's of the world, the Kreskis of the world, and that only 1.3% of those dollars were going to organizations whose organizing principle was justice and that were focused on communities of color. They said, how do we find a lever to make that kind of systemic change. And out of that emerged the Climate Funders Justice Pledge, which asks for two things. One, um, it asks all the funders, uh, the top 40 funders, uh, for the last two years to say, what have what dollars have I put into communities um, of color and the organizations that um, are responsive to those communities? And the second piece is to ask organizations to commit, ask those foundations to commit to getting to 30% of their annual U.S. funding uh, to go to organizations that are led by uh, people of color. Um, And we're really pleased that at the outset of the campaign, um, there have been a few funders um, that have joined. This is super interesting. What have been the results of the campaign so far? You know, I discussed the results on two fronts. One is in terms of the number of top 40 funders that have pledged. And the other one, which is a little harder to measure, but as important, is the way in which the conversation and the priority around fulfilling commitments um, has changed. So first off, in terms of the top 40 funders, There are three of them, soon to be four, that have made the full pledge. And there are about eight foundations outside of the top 40 that have pledged, which is really interesting because what you're seeing is that you have the foundations that have smaller portfolios, if you will, being quicker to jump in and say, hey, let's make sure to solve um, this problem. And that's great. Uh, But if you have the foundations that are the largest foundations in the country that account for the lion's share of investments, um, not pledging even to transparency, then that's a challenge. And I should say, in addition to all those, there are four foundations, Hewlett, MacArthur, Barr, and JPB, that at least said, we'll be transparent and let you know in the years for 2019, 2020, what percentage of our dollars went to organizations um, that, as the movement leaders have have defined it, um, a BIPOC-led, focused on justice and accountable to community. And that's important as well. While, of course, we'd love them to make sure to uh, pledge to the 30%, we know that those that are at least measuring and being transparent about what they're doing Um, are going to want to do better as we update these numbers. The work is not done, though. What we've seen is a number of foundations that have uh, declined for a number of reasons to pledge. And there are about, I'm just counting here really carefully, uh, about 14 or 15 foundations, which represents a lot of resources, um, who are in conversation with us, meaning We've had one or two meetings, they haven't blown us off, and they haven't yet made a decision for one reason or another. And then there are some folks that have not responded. And on our website, climate.donorsofcolor.org, you can see which ones have not responded. So that's really important. And what we're hearing from reporters is they're looking very carefully at these numbers and saying, hmm, why are some of these foundations now, it's been, you know, the campaign publicly launched in February. We'd done outreach uh, months before that last year uh, to these foundations. Why wouldn't they at least be transparent? The second way in which uh, this campaign has had success is in changing the conversation. What we're hearing from allies on the inside is that even for the foundations that haven't responded or haven't made a decision, Many of them are, for the very first time, um, actually looking at their numbers. Now, in a way, that's a little sad, right? We have on our website, again, climate.donorsofcolor.org, all the top 40 funders and the link in our FAQ to what they've said about diversity and inclusion being important to their work, and also what they have said in terms of uh, with the racial reckoning we've had in the last uh, year and a half 
um, what they've said post George Floyd. And there is a big gap between um, still, sadly, given that, you know, only 1.3% of the top dollars are going to BIPOC-led justice-focused groups, um, a gap between the rhetoric and the money. And so for many of them, they've not even run the numbers. You measure what you care about, right? And so they're telling us they need, you know, more time. Okay, let's go figure out you know, the time. But what we have seen is that at major conferences and in informal conversations, in coverage in the press, that this campaign has put this issue as a front burner issue rather than something that people are not talking about. And that you're seeing many foundations to their credit saying, even though my numbers don't look that great, one, I'm surprised they don't look as good as I thought. Um, uh, but secondly, I want to make sure and make a difference and do something about it. And we're having beside, beside, behind the scenes meetings as well uh, among foundation presidents to try to address this challenge. And on the eve of you know, COP26 um, and the United Nations talking about the fact that we're in code red territory and Biden wanting to see um, to succeed with his Justice 40 agenda, we are really thrilled with the progress just in the months this year that we've been uh, working and the progress that we've seen while also acknowledging we have uh, a ways to go and we're, we're going to continue and, and go at it. I mean, I f- you feel the feel changing. You know, Danielle's been here for a long time, so she has a um, a strong sense of, you know, who these funders are and what they care about and where the resistance has been. Um, and I think I'm the one who, and Sharon also, you know, knows the field. I'm newer to it. Um, but what I've definitely seen is people having these conversations that they don't normally have to have. Um, and it feels fantastic to be using the position of donors of color to actually have this access, you know, like to like turn on our Zoom and there's the head of the MacArthur Foundation saying, you know what, we haven't talked seriously enough about this. We don't normally sign pledges, but we believe this is important and we are going to, you know, commit to reporting our data every year. Um, like those are powerful moments, you know, with with very powerful people. We also find people who had never calculated their data, you know, as Danielle said at the beginning of the campaign, at the very least know your number. You know, like know what percentage of the groups that you're funding are people of color because you are not going to get to equity unless you actually measure it. Like we measure what we care about um, and we improve what we measure and learning as we have these conversations that so many people who had all the right rhetoric and all the right words, you know, that no one will tell you they're not committed to racial justice we're not actually even doing the basics of finding out like how are we doing when it looks when it actually hits a spreadsheet like what is this what how is our budget reflecting our morals yeah and this, sharon here I, to tie this back to um what the purpose is of donors of color network um really uh we came together under the premise that our lived experience matters and this is a big example of this because Um, As people of color in our lives, uh, whether it's professionally or um, whatever context that we lived in, uh, a lot of us have experienced um, these uh, ideas that, okay, we're trying to, let's say, get a job or get a promotion or or whatnot. And there's a um, understandable but pernicious um, idea out there um, that, oh, well, um, the donors of the, the people of color uh, led organizations, they're too small to deal with the big issues or there's not enough of them. It's hard to find them. They're just not enough in the pipeline. And uh, we know that that's usually not true and that it's a lack of imagination and um, habit that holds us as a society back in these issues. And we, and what we're, we've done with this Climate Funders Justice Pledge is noticed a, a spot where it's, um, it's, it's very apparent if you look at the numbers that as a society, we're not playing with all our players on the field when some of the most inspiring and effective uh, climate action um, is being led by uh, communities of color, and you think of Standing Rock and and what that ex- has inspired inspired across the country, um, and groups that are doing that work are perpetually underfunded and underestimated. Um, 
then we realize that as a society, we're not doing what we need to do to, to move forward on collective action. And if you don't mind me continuing to add here, thank you, Sharon. Um, I would also talk about, you know, thinking about the audience for this podcast, you know, which is one who thinks about economics and investments. And, um, you know, I think similarly in the investment space, like people of color are a missed opportunity over and over again, um, because the lived experience of the people who are making investment decisions doesn't recognize the brilliance of those types of entrepreneurs. Um, and so you actually lose money, you lose productivity. Um, and I think there's research that backs that up that Monique, you could probably point us to, um, you know, that says like, you know, when you invest in women and people of color, you get outsized results when you invest in them at scale. Um, and we're finding the same thing in the climate movement, which is we know this to be true. You know, you can actually document it when you look at things like Standing Rock, like the act, the outsized impact to the funding that went there um, was phenomenal. Like it might have created one of the biggest sea changes in terms of like international perspective. People from all over the world came to Standing Rock and there was minimal investment, you know, that went into it. Um, but the people who make funding decisions are primarily middle and upper class white men, sometimes women, um, you know, having done this work for some time, you know, we really do know what the decision makers look like. And, you know, over time, we certainly hope that that will change with a lot of intention from the field. But in the meantime, the folks who are in those decision making positions need to realize what they're overlooking, like what is outside of their lived experience that is blinding them to the most effective strategies in, in resolving the climate crisis. And Sharon, you said something really interesting. You mentioned a lack of imagination. And when we think about um, the kind of imagination we need to do things differently, you three do not lack imagination. And the leadership behind this work is mostly women of color. Uh, you've chosen to participate and prioritize in this radical collaboration, both the network and the three of you working together, the climate justice movement in this moment. So what led the three of you here now? And maybe Danielle, you can share with us a little bit of your story, then we'll hear from you, Sharon, and then Ashindi. Sure. I fell into philanthropy. Um, after I did um, my master's at London School of Economics and Environment and Development, um, someone suggested that I look at philanthropy. And I thought to myself, um, you know, the Met, Ladies Who Lunch, you know, I didn't appreciate, even though um, I had been looking at the environmental field, um, how influential philanthropy has been in every sector in setting the agenda and deciding what uh, strategies get the most um, juice. And so I was um, lucky enough um, to get into a role at the Hewlett Foundation where I ran what at the time was um, one of the largest environmental justice um, programs, grant-making programs in the country, and had the opportunity to work and collaborate with um, amazing environmental justice advocates who were pushing very hard to make sure that California's um, climate efforts um, to decarbonize its economy and transform it included elements that ensured that those that were most affected got those benefits. And the shock for me was that um, many of the organizations um, that the Hewlett Foundation was funding out of other portfolios, that their diversity uh, was so challenging and also that um, they were not as focused on um, making sure that equity was woven into it. And if you fast forward a number of years, and, and, and in the years since I've worked for a second foundation, I worked for the Obama administration at the Department of Energy, um, what we've seen nationally and internationally is that it's not just a moral issue weaving equity into um, policies. It's a strategic issue. In France, you had the Yellow Vest movement um, looking to... Um, uh, push back against environmental policies that were having a disproportionate impact on the poor. And you've also seen um, the, the, the Biden administration currently um, having its Justice 40 initiative, which aims to make sure that we ad address climate um, and, and equity issues uh, hand in hand. Um, and I was just so privileged to work with 
uh, amazing uh, leaders, uh, men and women, and, and particularly um, women of color that were working together uh, to get the impossible done. And so one thing I'll flag as we look at this collaboration is that the donors of color um, work in collaboration with movement leaders. And so Colette Pinchon Battle from the Gulf Coast Center on Law and Policy and Mia Yoshitani from the Asian Pacific Environment Network are two uh, amazing leaders who are also guiding this campaign. It's a collaboration. There are many folks behind, you know, me, Ashindi uh, and Sharon um, and making sure that um, all voices are heard and contribute. And this is about winning. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, if we are to be successful um, against um, industries that are trying to undermine progress, it's going to be critical to make sure uh, that no one is left behind and that these voices um, are included and that, and that their ideas are included. That's such a beautiful truth. And um, Sharon, would you like to share a little bit more about your journey to here? Yeah, um, I started um, down this path uh, as a donor, really. I was looking to do something. I I've been fortunate in my, uh, uh, my financially blessed in my life um, through my work. And um, so I started out as a donor probably um, almost 20 years ago now um, in the environmental space. And um, when I first started uh, getting interested in issues you know, progress would be blocked, right, typically. And um, it used to be that I thought, oh, well, it's just, you know, some um, problem legislators or, or people that were bad actors kind of thing. But um, I start peeling back the onion, so to speak, of what's really going on and then came to understand, well, you know, there's actually a system propping um, bad, bad actors up because as soon as you sort of um, get one elected out of office, um, another one pops up. And <laughs> so then just keep on peeling back the onion. So why is that? How does this happen? How come um, things that we want to get done that seems to be based in science aren't passing? And then you realize um, after peeling back so many layers that it's that um, power is in the hands of too few in this country you know, at the state level, local level, national level, and whatever onion you're looking at, whether it's uh, reproductive rights or environmental uh, environmental causes or social justice issues or, you know, um, really unsexy stuff like taxes. Um, whatever the onion is, you peel it and you peel it and peel it. And I always get, came to the same thing and that um, power in the hands of too few and realize that a lot of things would get fixed if we just fix that power imbalance. And so um, I think uh, something that's common uh, on, among us donors of color, even though we probably came to philanthropy from a whole different set of um, issues that uh, caught us in terms of our personal passions, was this common understanding that um, the root of a lot of the issues that we care about all point back to this power imbalance. And that's what we're working on. That's what I'm here for. And uh, Shindi, how about you? Fantastic. Um, so yeah, where I would pick up from um, what Sharon said in terms of um, demographics of power is also or the sort of thinking about the demographics of power and who is in power in terms of how you shape these systems. Um, is also that, you know, there are incredible systems that prop up who gets to be in power, which we are also thinking about. And you asked Sharon about the donors of color action side of the work. Um, and I do want to just look that up for a second um, because I think it is super relevant to this campaign. A campaign I worked on before I came to donors of color was reflective democracy. And the idea of reflective democracy was that our elected leaders should look like the population they represent. And they don't. In fact, white men hold about five times the political power they should as a um, percentage of the population. And there's no coincidence to that. The structures are all set up to maintain sort of patriarchy and white supremacy. And those sound like, you know, very lefty words, but you actually can't describe the system unless you acknowledge those things. Um, so reflective democracy was meant to say, like, you know, if you had a fully functional democracy, you would have a perfect reflection of the population and the people in power. Um, and so, you know, when I think about what we're trying to do at Donors of Color, 
it is actually contesting for power across race, across all of the places where we've been denied that power in a very systemic and intentional way. Um, and the only way that we actually gain it is by finding what we have in common. So we are working with women, you know, the Women Donors Network is a part of the group that we work with, you know, we are working with black folks and, um, you know, the NAACP is one of our partners. We are working with Latinx organizations. We are working with Native American organizations. We are working with Arab American organizations. We are working with API organizations. And we actually have members from all of those communities inside of our community of donors of color. Um, and I think that's really important because I think that the only way we gain the power that we need to shift these systems in the best interest of everyone like in the best interest of everyone, um, is if we're really intentional about working across race and about understanding um, the systems that have gotten us to this place, you know, that 1.3% number is not a fluke. Um, you can find it replicated in almost any part of philanthropy that you look into closely. You know, what does API funding look like in philanthropy? A teeny tiny fraction of what it should if we were actually reflecting a percentage of the population. Like what does black funding um, you know, funding a black community look like, you know, a teeny tiny fraction of what it would look like, um, you know, if we were funding that percentage of the population. So I think having that broader analysis of why we need, um, you know, women and people of color and people who just care about democracy and the issues um, to be in on, um, you know, on how you create the most powerful solutions by working together. So what do you all make of the opportunity for real change with respect to climate globally with the UN conference coming up in November? And Danielle mentioned Justice 40, but um, is there an opportunity for us to get it right? There is a, a huge opportunity uh, to get it right. You know, I think uh, Biden was right when he called this a moment of both um, peril and opportunity and that there are linkages it's important um, to recognize between the issues that are playing out in terms of representation in the U.S. and internationally. So in developing this campaign, um, as I mentioned, a hallmark of the donors of color is listening to the leaders in the field. And one of the um, amazing indigenous activists, um, Dallas Goldtooth from the Indigenous Environmental Network, um, said, remember that often the same companies in the United States um, that are trying to um, maintain the status quo are the ones um, similarly abroad um, that are um, attacking and trying to undermine um, the communities that are most affected, whether uh, it's in Brazil or it's in Nigeria. And so what you're seeing is this uh, collaboration across borders um, of communities trying to make sure that as uh, policies and agreements are designed, that self-determination um, is, is critical and the voices of leaders um, from across uh, all communities are represented. And last year I had, and this is one thing that gives me hope, last year I had an opportunity um, to interview a number of youth leaders and the young generation, all of them, uh, multiracial um, are, are very, very aware of the fact that if their uh, colleagues in the global South um, and even within quote unquote wealthier countries that have underserved communities, if their voices are not there and if the wealthier countries do not step up to help with uh, the, the investment that we need to transform our economy and also with the um, with the mitigation and support that countries need to manage this problem that the elites in wealthy countries um, have caused, that they're working to make sure that that happens. Um, but the U.S. is, of course, critical to anything happening at the scale and speed that we need. Are we getting progress? Yes. The key question is, are we getting progress at the scale and speed uh, that we need? And we have um, the Biden administration, which has put a number of uh, influential leaders that have deep expertise on equity into key positions at the part of Department of Energy, um, at the Council on Environmental Quality, and in, in, at the EPA and other places. But we know that government action has to be complemented by action on the ground. Um, and we saw that the last attempt, the Waxman-Markey um, uh, 
effort to address climate under Obama, one of the reasons it failed, it was because it was too much of an inside game uh, that didn't have enough equity built in, which ironically, oil companies tend to exploit and say, oh, this is going to be you know, bad for the poor. Oil companies don't care about the <laughs> about the poor very much. Um, what they are doing is exploiting the weaknesses um, on our end. So we have to look at ourselves. And so what's critical about this campaign and the timing of this campaign is that um, we have amazing opportunities and leaders in place that can push through change because of a lot of amazing work that happened last year. Um, but what we need in particular, and, and I'm thinking about your audience here, um, for leaders that are trustees at these big foundations, a key question that we've been asking is, are they asking the right questions of their president, the president of their foundation? Are they asking the right questions of their environmental staff? And if you happen to be listening uh, to this and you are on a foundation a board um, and you care at all about equity, um, you measure what you care about. And one of the things we hope that folks are asking is, where are dollars going? Is this foundation taking the pledge? Uh, and and I'll ask, you know, sort of Sharon and Ashindi to add a couple of points there as well. Yeah, I really feel like our campaign is a truth and reconciliation moment that challenges the top, the nation's top climate funders to recognize that the status quo is an ineffective strategy. And we call on them to ensure we're playing with all of our players on the field. I can... Um... I guess what I would add is I do feel hopeful. I mean, I think this is a super hopeful campaign, um, you know, in terms of the opportunity for real change. As Sharon said, you know, like we didn't put everyone on the field. Like, so picture, like, you know, a soccer field to be as, as international as possible. Um, and your best players, like some of them are still sitting on the bench. Like, that's a hopeful moment in your game. Um, in which you can actually get them off the bench and put them in. Um, and we have not resourced many of the people who have the most to gain, the most to um, contribute to the climate battle. We've left them on the sidelines. We left them starving for resources. So I feel super hopeful um, just based on the conversations we've had and based, um, you know, that people really are taking this seriously as a strategy for change um, and also that it will matter. You know, we're in this moment of like just such immense climate crisis. It's here. It's at our doorstep. It's not, it's not conceptual. Um, and so if we can take the urgency that people feel like quite possibly this week in their own bodies to say like, it is a crisis that we do something differently. And we believe that that energy can be harnessed um, into a change in strategy um, and also into getting not just the, you know, sort of funded organizations, but like people who have sat back and believe that climate work was something that was sort of done by the Sierra Club and organizations that, you know, a select number of people relate to um, and get this to be a place where everyone understands how they are invested and has a path to, um, to engaging deeply. Yeah. Let me offer a concrete example for listeners who are trying to struggle with, well, what exactly do you get by funding, you know, communities of color um, in, in particular, right? Um, one thing that, uh, so I think about environmental issues and there's a lot of uh, funding and attention paid on electric cars, for instance, which, which I love, I own one, okay? So I don't say this out of, you know, disrespect to that. But if you think about the relative um, impact of more millionaires driving more electric cars, uh, sure, you know, there's the dream of, you know, scaling that up to everybody. But in the time frame we're talking about and the, the affordability, um, getting more the, the masses who own you know, your gas guzzlers, your older cars into mass transit at scale is something that will have a greater impact faster. And yet um, understanding and listening to uh, communities of color in their access to transportation and, um, and, 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 and just doing the sheer math behind what impact that would have on on the carbon that we um, send into the atmosphere. It's, it's something that I think people don't appreciate necessarily. There's so, so much money just flowing in my city um, in Seattle to, 
climate solutions that look like, oh, how do we make it better for rich people to be more responsible rather than how do we make it for the millions of people in Puget Sound to get where they need to go? Um, That's a shift in perspective. That's an example of the shift in perspective that we need. And it's just one example that I hope your audience can take and put in their imaginations of what it would look like to have um, our player, all our players on the field in the way that Ashindi described. I really love that, Sharon. I love that so much. Um, and I want to also point out that, you know, where, where we have hit stumbling blocks with the folks who haven't signed our pledge, because it is a majority of people who still have not signed on to the pledge that we've requested of, you know, 30% of um, our funding going to organizations led by and accountable to people of color, um, and then pledging to report that data, you know, it's still a majority of top 40 funders who have, you know, are considering. Most are saying they're still thinking about it. Very few have actually said no. Um, and what what I'd like to report is that, you know, many of them have very little imagination about all of the ways that people of color play in these solutions. And so, and I would actually point out to like all of the press we have shows direct action. Um, you know, like if there's a photo accompanying a press article about this campaign, it pretty much always is like protesters in the streets matters immensely that we have protesters in the streets. <laughs> like we, they must be there. Um, you will not gain the popular will to pass massive legislation unless you have protesters in the streets and direct action. Huge part of the story that is underfunded and should continue to be resourced at like much higher levels. However, you must also resource policymakers, transportation planners, <laughs> the people who design electric vehicles, the scientists, like all of them have a different kind of imagination about our communities. And so, you know, I think that the people who are making funding decisions have to open up their vision of like, what does it mean to fund people of color? Like it means fund us to do all of the things, you know, like fund us in laboratories, fund us as thought leaders and writers and journalists and fund us as the people who plan cities. Um, You know, it is not just direct action that we're talking about here. And a lot of people can't get past the belief that that is the only thing we're talking about when we say fund people of color. One thing I would add is that sometimes the analogy I've been using um, is hidden figures, where most of us were shocked that this, you know, goal of, uh, you know, getting to the moon had people of color, women of color that were absolutely vital and critical. And so you didn't know their story. And so um, what, for instance, uh, Lois DeBarco, who runs the environment program at the Kresge Foundation, who was one of the first out of the blocks to say we're making this pledge, said, when you seek, you'll find. Um, and the leaders are out there. And what our this campaign and the website does is not just say, get to this 30 percent. What it does is it lifts up the organizations that are doing this amazing work. So we have on our website, uh, in collaboration with movement leaders, a list of networks from across the country that you could write a check to tomorrow um, to get resources to organizations that are doing great work. So we've taken away the excuse of I don't know where they are, I can't find them. Um, They are there. And of course, foundations have billions of dollars um, in the bank. They could find them themselves. But this little campaign is making it easy for you because we need speed and we need scale. And secondly, to Shindy's point, um, the other, as we heard, as we did so many of these calls, people saying, well, you know, I tend to fund analysis. Um, I I tend to fund research. Um, We went and spoke to three of the most um, influential um, climate scholars in the field, Professor Manuel Pastor, um, Dr. Bob Bullard, who just got an award from UNEP, and uh, Professor Dorcita Taylor, who's now at Yale. And we created a little Google form that they sent out to all their networks and that we sent out to all their networks. And so on our website, you will find the most current list uh, in the country of scholars that have terminal degrees, PhDs, JDs, et cetera, that work um, on climate justice in particular. And we didn't just list them because they happen to be people of color. We list on the website what organizations um, in the environmental justice world have they worked with. 
How many students of color do they have coming up behind them? What reports have they put out? Um, and so these are scholars who are also doing their scholarship differently and recognizing that there is wisdom that comes from um, analysis and scholarship and research and wisdom that comes from lived experience on the ground. Uh, and so um, we are, again, uh, putting to rest this idea that somehow if you have some particular strategy, um, that that somehow means that you automatically aren't looking at folks of color. So there's a, a wealth of, of information there. That's so powerful. And thank you for doing all of that co collation and curation. Mm -hmm. um, so this work is not for the faint of heart. Uh, where do you each turn for fresh fire, as they say, um, and the inspiration to soldier on? as we journey towards this more just next normal that we seek. Danielle? You've heard these amazing, you know, ladies that I get to work with. Um, we are seeing change happen. And so we're pushing for it to happen at the scale and speed that we need. But to get to work with a collaboration of leaders uh, like Sharon, um, that are using their wealth and privilege, not just to buy another yacht um, or something, but to partner um, with leaders to do uh, great work. Um, that really helps to fuel me. And my kids, my three kids, of course, also help to fuel me. And I'm, I'm originally from uh, the Caribbean, um, from Trinidad and Tobago. And so these issues around climate um, are very personal to me, not just professional for as long as I've uh, been around um, uh, and sort of known myself, I knew I'd be working to try to figure out how we get the resources and the energy that we need without damaging um, the, the places and, and, and people that we hold dear. And, you know, there's this term, um, pleasure activism, um, and, you know, it's a, a book and the, the, one of the leaders of housing works coined it. Uh, when you are doing this work, as much as you're facing these stark facts and these issues, um, you're collaborating and have such a sense of purpose and, and getting an opportunity to work with leaders, um, that just really does fuel you. And even for those foundations that are on the fence, often we have talked to um, leaders that have said, you know, if it were up to me, I'd make this pledge right away. It's the trustees or it's the board or it's the conservative president, and they've given us thoughts and advice, and we've met so many wonderful, amazing uh, folks along the way. Um, so those relationships really help to fuel me as well. Well, I consider this podcast pleasure activism then. There you go. And, and, for you, <laughs> and for you, Sharon, who, what do you yes. turn to for fuel? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is a balance for me. Um, <laughs> There are uh, the way one way that I keep the fire going and the inspiration to keep going when I get tired because this work can be tiring um, is to stay as close as possible in in relationship to people really from the communities across my state. So in Washington State, that's farm worker groups. That's um, that's indigenous. Uh, uh, women, especially, and um, and um, people of color of all uh, stripes and you know gender identities, etc., um, sharing with me their lives. Uh, so that really helps keep my perspective, I think, uh, fresh and inspires me to keep on working. At the same time, um, I'm I also uh, as in terms of a personal um, tendency, I, I can sometimes just keep on working and burn myself out. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've really drawn upon some, um, um, well, I think about one um, friend of mine in particular, who's um, a little bit older than me. She's a, a black woman who has been working in these issues for a long time. Her name is Ruby. <laughs> Hi, Ruby. Um, and she, she reminds me to uh, celebrate when there are things to celebrate because I will have a tendency of, of, of finishing one thing and then going to the next thing and thinking, oh, well, this isn't done yet. And she's like, no, we take a pause. 
we have something to celebrate and we will. And definitely doing that step, um, I find, is necessary to keep myself inspired for keeping doing the work um, because there's more to do. And like Danielle was saying earlier, um, we need to be working at the scale that we require and not just Mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, we made some progress. Yes and yes. And as we think about you know, what is this, what is one characteristic of the next normal? If we are successful and your work and efforts do not flag and my work and efforts do not flag and our work and efforts do not flag. Radical solidarity, um, where with every decision we make, we look carefully at who's being most affected by this, who could benefit from this and make sure that we are explicit and rigorous about working that into our efforts rather than assuming that some kind of trickle-down economics or trickle-down mm-hmm. environmentalism um, will bring it uh, to bear. How about for you, Sharon? What's one characteristic this next normal must have? I think that um, uh, the moment that we've been talking about is about money, right? In our this Climate Justice Funders Pledge, um, or Climate Funders Justice Pledge, and uh, remembering that money is um, just a proxy, though a very good one, to access to power. And so shifting power is the normal that I feel we need to get to. And agree more. And if we think about living in the ancestral imagination of others who were powerful in their time and didn't envision me sitting here being educated or having access to some of the benefits that I've had access to. But as we think forward, what do we need to do now to be good ancestors if we are, if those folks in the future will be living in our imaginations. I think that in order to be a good ancestor, we need to lift up all of our children. And I think that um, so far uh, we haven't done as good a job as we could in understanding that all children are our children and that they all have a role to play that would benefit all of our children. And that's, I think the fundamental thing that I think about and, and um, gives context to what we're doing. We really um, no, there is so much work to do. We understand the debt we owe to our ancestors, and that can lead us to say, you know, hey, given what they did, I'm so lucky, relatively speaking, and so I have to keep going, and sometimes we burn out. And one of the quotes that I like from Audre Lorde is the one where she said, caring for myself is not a self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that in itself is an act of political warfare. So what's in store for the Donors of Color Network for the near future, Shindy? So much. (laughs) Um, We're really kind of overwhelmed with opportunity. Um, And so sitting in this moment, a really fortunate moment, actually, in which we've just received um, a major gift from the Mackenzie Scott money um, towards racial justice, um, and sitting with some thinking about what is the most powerful way to deploy all of the resources, you know, we, um, we have, you know, in coordination right now, which is a multiracial community of donors, um, you know, a new, <laughs> a new financial gift, um, the attention um, that this climate campaign has garnered, um, which we think is a model, um, you know, so we obviously want to continue to push this campaign as far and as powerfully as we can, um, you know, but I think we're also looking for in terms of the network, what are the most influential places that we can play our role in history? Um, you know, we're sitting in this moment in which Democracy is deeply threatened. The climate is deeply threatened. Um, and they have everything to do with race. Um, you know, and you have a media um, and a political system that actually don't know how to engage with race. 
Um, so we believe that as this multiracial community, we have an immense amount to give um, in terms of, um, you know, again, influence, resources, grant making, um, elevating the voices of leaders of color um, towards shaping these systems that are at a historic moment, both of crisis and opportunity, um, you know, to reshape them towards justice. And I think that we have a, a very unique role as a community um, to play in this. So I think much, much more to come with the climate movement, um, the climate campaign as a really great model um, of, you know, of what we think it looks like when we use our voices together. Listeners can learn more about Ashindi, Sharon and Danielle at donorsofcolor.org and about the Climate Justice Pledge at climate.donorsofcolor.org. Thank you again for your interest in this work and in this community, Monique. Thank you, Monique, for the great service that you are doing, being such a fantastic ancestor. Yes, thanks so much for having us. This was a real pleasure. And uh, as a an invitation to your listeners, um, we, as Ashindi mentioned, we're at about 60 members right now, and we would love to invite any um, people who see themselves as not necessarily philanthropists, but people that are interested in making donations of any kind um, to invite you to join the Donors of Color Network. We're looking for more members. We would love to have you and please contact us. Uh, I I would personally love to talk to you. The Reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth-Davies, Anjali Deshmukh, and Carrie Hansen with thanks to Dr. Julian Marcel. We have benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. To send us your favorite quote or ideas for future guests who you think represent the principles of the reconstruction, email us at tr at impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bank, and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lainika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the dash reconstruction and sign up for a mailing list to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us, impactalpha.com slash subscribe. And our closing quote comes from Danielle Dean. She asked us to share another Audrey Lord. It is not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences.